The future of education isn't fixed. It's made one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome, everyone. Today, I have John Tagg, who is Professor Emeritus of English at Palomar College in San Marcos, California. He's author of an earlier book, The Learning Paradigm College, written back around 2003. As I understand it, and John can clarify this for us, it was an expansion of a, of a core premise shared in what some consider a really groundbreaking article back in 1995, where Tagg asserted that we must make a fundamental change in higher education, a paradigm uh, shift from a paradigm of teaching to a paradigm of learning and student learning. And I'm pretty sure we're going to get into that conversation today as well. But our primary focus during this interview will be uh, John's more recent book, published in 2019, a text called The Instruction Myth, Why Higher Education is Hard to Change and How to Change It. John, welcome. Good to be here. John, as I was looking at reviews of your most recent book, I found one or two that I liked, but um, Fink, who is sort of a, a scholar that's very well known for this, those of us who come out of the field of instructional design and instructional technology, wrote a, a groundbreaking book called Creating Significant Learning Experiences, was one of the people who reviewed your book. I was pretty excited about that. And, and he wrote, um, any administrator who wants to distinguish his or her in institution from others can and should do so by creating a truly learning-centered educational program. In this book, Tag lays out the challenges that will have to be dealt with in such an endeavor and describes several tools for achieving the changes needed. Really great review and um, some, some very positive reviews about your book. So thanks for putting all the time and energy into writing it. It was a pleasure, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, as we get started with the interview, I always like to start with a bit of a personal professional uh, piece where we give the listeners a chance to hear a little bit about your story and how you ended up to um, where you are today or to where you are in terms of what we're talking about today. So if you wouldn't mind, could you just give us a, a brief a brief uh, history of how your work led up to the writing of this book, The Instruction Myth? Well, I, I have a rather checkered career, as a matter of fact. I, um, I was a doctoral program dropout in the 1970s, and I left higher education for a number of years. Then I, uh, almost by accident, started teaching, a, and I did done a num number of things. I was a technical writer and a speech writer for a large company and various things, and I I started teaching a class in uh, in uh, composition at the local community college, and and I realized that I liked doing that a lot more than I liked doing any of the other things I'd been doing. So I went back <laughs> to teaching, and uh, early on, I served on a task force at our college, the Vision Task Force, where we were supposed to re-examine what the college was about. Now. While I was away, I'd done some reading in in uh, management theory, uh, Peter Drucker and uh, Peters and Waterman, that sort of thing, and and had begun to think 
from an organizational perspective. And when we got into this task force work, I found that uh, there was there were a lot of things about the college and about other colleges and universities that that didn't work the way they claimed they worked. And um, in my conversations with uh, Robert Barr, who was my co-author for the 95 article, uh, he first came up with the idea that what there really was was two different paradigms. Uh, that the theory in use, as organizational theorists uh, uh, Donald Shern, the late Donald Shern and Chris Argris describe it, uh, every organization has two kinds of theories of action, a, a theory in use and an espoused theory. The espoused people, the theory is what people say, and the theory in use is what guides their behavior. And in many cases, we're not even aware of the fact that what we're doing isn't what we think we're doing. Uh, in higher education, for example, uh, education is supposedly all about the students at the undergraduate, undergraduate level. But what we actually keep track of, we found, was classes taken. That the practice of higher education is to reward degrees and reinforcement on the basis of completing classes. And the question of whether students learn much or how much they learn in classes is a question that really doesn't get examined at the institutional level, at most institutions. So we developed this theory that there are really two par paradigms at work here. One, a framework in which we teach classes in order to achieve the requirements of the institution, the instruction paradigm, and the other, a paradigm in which we ask, well, what are students learning and what can they do and what do they know as a result of what we're doing? And um, our 95 article argued that it was time to switch from the instruction paradigm to the learning paradigm. And my 2003 book expanded on that theory. And uh, all this time, I was working on my own campus and increasingly going to other campuses and talking to faculty about how to change. Uh, the reaction I got to the, to, the, to the Learning Paradigm College book, uh, the most frequent question people asked was, well, this sounds all great, emphasizing student learning and putting student learning in the driver's seat and organizing our activities around student learning, but how do we do that? How do we get from here to there? And I very quickly realized that the answer to that question was going to be another book, um, and that's uh, that's what led to the instruction myth. The instruction myth of the title is the core idea that uh, what colleges are about is providing instruction, and that having been instructed, students have done the job that needs to be done. Um, so. Uh, and that pretty much guides practice in most higher education institutions. Uh, and we can go into the aspects of that. I don't know what you'd like to take first because there are quite a few of them. But I, gu I guess I would say, to go back to your original question, I began early on to take a kind of a systems perspective on the institution, mm -hmm. to look at the higher education institution as an organization 
that provides incentives for the people working in it. And that perspective opened up a lot of ways of seeing why what we say we're doing in colleges and universities is very often not what we're really doing and why what we want to do, because our espoused theory is sincere, we really do go into education. I think most college faculty and uh, anonymous surveys confirm this because we want students to learn. But the framework of the institution, the organization of the university, doesn't make that a priority for us. And in fact, makes it hard for us to emphasize that priority. So even institutions that emphasize verbally, orally, in terms of their mission statements and their vision statements and their catalogs, emphasize student learning, find that they often don't have a handle on it. Mm. So the the notion of the instruction myth, I'm so grateful that you took the time to sort of break that down for us uh, briefly. There's a phrase um, in, the, in the text early on, I believe, that's, that's direct, that's just higher education is broken. And and so um, and we've struggled to fix it. So how how do we fix it? And that metaphor conjured for me a, a question, I suppose, which is if we say that something is broken, that seems to assume that there was a time when it was not broken. Um, but I wanted to give you a chance to sort of reply to that and, and see if if that's what you meant by the metaphor or or not. Well, that's a good question. And in fact, the second chapter of the book is devoted to a brief history of higher education, explaining how we got uh, where we are today. Mm -hmm. And I suppose my answer would be the perhaps the analogy of being broken isn't quite precise because uh, the place I end up is that higher education has never really uh, done what it claims to do uh, in the uh, you know, just limiting the history to the United States, the in the colonial college where the focus was the classical curriculum, learning Latin and Greek and reciting ancient texts with accuracy and translating them, um, where every teacher at the institution taught every subject because they were basically universalists in the subjects of the university. The the um, in that framework, there was a focus. Everybody knew what the purpose was, and there was a, a meaningful sense of unity and 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 uh, common goal. The problem was, as was has been, I think, pretty well confirmed that uh, learning Latin and Greek and to translate ancient texts doesn't really prepare you for life. A lot of things you need to do in life, and is probably not the uh, apex of of an excellent education. So we moved away from the classical education, and about that time, uh, the German model of research based the research based university uh, came to the fore. Many uh, American professors went to Germany and studied there, and came back. Uh, uh, excited about the prospect of discovery of the sort of enlightenment model of the researcher as finder of the new that came to dominate higher education. And 
we've now moved into a stage where the role of research as the controlling purpose of higher education has become dominant, and that's been true for over 100 years now. Uh, and so the organization, for example, academic departments, why do we have the academic departments we do? I mean, why do we have a department of history and a department of uh, sociology and a department of music rather than a department of the 19th century, where you study the history and sociology and music of the 19th century? Well, that's essentially a historical accident. And the source of the organization of most universities is graduate education for the purpose of research. Uh, the academic departments, even at community colleges, that uh, the, the way they're divvied up, the way they're divided and, and purposed is borrowed from the organization of research-based graduate institutions. So research tends to end, of course, the promotion of faculty, the hiring and promotion of faculty is largely determined by their research accomplishments, which is augmented by what I call in the book, the myth of the unity of research and teaching. The common knowledge in the university is that research is a, is a sort of a general test for the ability of people to also be good teachers. Um, and unfortunately, every time that's been studied seriously, the conclusion seems to be that, that, has, that that's not true. There's no demonstrable connection between the ability of somebody to do research and somebody to teach. So the dominance of research in the university today has led to the myth of unity, which reinforces the instruction myth, which reinforces another myth I talk about in the book, which is the myth of teacher professionalism. The idea that because teachers are professional and expert researchers, they will therefore be expert teachers. And, you know, it's hard for me to believe that there's anybody who's, who's graduated from college and gone to graduate school who actually believes that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you, but that was not my experience. Uh, and in fact, um, uh, oh, I think one of the best things ever written on this was uh, Anna Tobin who was a graduate of Leeds University uh, in the UK, uh, who wrote a reflective article after she graduated. And she said, I'm not quoting this. I'm quoting this from memory, so I may not get it quite right it's in the book. Um, you know, I had uh, professors with IQs to match Einstein who'd written uh, uh, dozens of uh, monographs and libraries of books but couldn't teach a dog to sit. <laughs> and I think we've all had that experience. The problem is that the quality control process in higher education is basically guided by the goal of producing excellent researchers, which for the most part, it does very well. The teaching part of it gets distributed almost entirely uh, to the individual faculty member. And the responsibility for quality control in teaching and in student learning falls almost entirely on the individual faculty member. 
And uh, one of the unfortunate things that uh, that results from the dominance of research is that there is no community of practice around teaching that is really powerful for most faculty at most institutions. Now, that's there are exceptions, and there are things like uh, faculty learning communities, for example, that can resist this tendency. And many institutions are making a real effort to do that. But it remains the case that at most institutions, uh, four-year colleges and universities, and when I say most, I mean way, way overwhelmingly most, the criterion for success and promotion in the faculty and into administration are overwhelmingly biased in favor of research and against teaching. Uh, so that there's a great effort to assess the quality of research, the whole system of uh, uh, academic journals, which are basically articles written by college professors to other college professors, has, uh, has invested an enormous amount of time, money, and effort on the process of vetting, reviewing, quality control for academic research. In comparison to that, about the only thing we have to judge the value of teaching is student evaluations. And as I argue uh, at probably more length than <laughs> some people <laughs> would like in the book, uh, they're not worth much. They, they are not a serious method of, assisting the, of assessing the quality of teaching. So we have no method, really, at most institutions. We do not take the assessment of teaching and the improvement teaching seriously. And when I say we, I don't mean we distributively individual faculty members. Of course we do. The problem is we're all on our own to do it for the most part. We collectively, the institution, does not take that seriously and does not invest in it at the level we do improving the quality of research. Mm. So despite this persistent problem in higher education, um, somehow people still manage to learn something um, going through the higher education e experience. I mean, we, we have people who graduate and they become doctors and lawyers and teachers and uh, start businesses and other things like that. And I've often – I have a theory about this that, that, uh, that, that part of it is because it, it actually points to the power of learning more than the power of teaching is that that somehow motivated learners have managed to get something out of it despite subpar teaching at times. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? I I agree with <laughs> your theory. <laughs> I, I think I also think that there are a lot of really great teachers out there mm -hmm. and there are many faculty, uh, you know, one of the things that I uh, resist in the book is the, uh, I do argue in the book, and the evidence for this is pretty overwhelming, that faculty collectively resist change at the university, that they are a very conservative element, not politically, but with a small c, uh, uh, fighting against the current, and this is largely driven by uh, loss aversion, which is a powerful determinant in, it leads to what uh, I call in the book the status quo bias. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. So faculty collectively resist change. But faculty individually, if you look at the best evidence on why they went into faculty work, most faculty became college professors because they want to teach. And uh, many are rather distraught by the fact that nobody seems to pay much attention in graduate school <laughs> to whether they learn to do that or not, because most graduate programs, doctoral programs, are not attuned to preparing uh, their students for becoming effective teachers. But um, what I think happens, I mean, I, you know, in my own experience, I had some great teachers. and they're the ones I remember. Now, I would say a majority of the teachers I had in in college weren't any great shakes. They weren't awful. They weren't bad. However, I've encountered a number of simply incompetent instructors. And once they have tenure, they can pretty much keep doing that forever. Um, now, this is not necessarily an argument against tenure. And I talk about tenure at some length in the book. Um, But I do think that really the challenge for the institution is we need to re-examine the criteria for tenure for faculty or get rid of it. Now, Hmm. some institutions have gotten rid of it and seem to have done all right without it. Uh, I don't take a position for or against, but I do say that I mean, I think tenure has some obvious advantages and, and, and benefits, but if, if you're going to give lifetime tenure, you're basically making a compact with the society that you will maintain the quality of the work. And I think it is the case that uh, in terms of uh, faculty research, most institutions have, by and large, kept that compact. In terms of faculty teaching, uh, nobody knows because, as I suggest, there we really haven't made excellence or improvement in teaching a criterion in the tenure process. And of course, tenure tends to drive everything else. Uh, even those faculty who will never get tenure, which is a growing proportion of the total faculty who teach most students, still organize their graduate programs and their early careers very often with the purpose of trying to get tenure. So tenure tends to control things in the organization. And right now, the criteria for tenure are not friendly to undergraduate students. And and of course, you know, you put young people who are going to learn stuff. Now, what they learn may be how to sp- skateboard and how to make every cocktail in the you know, manual, but they're going to learn something. If you put them in a context where there are a lot of smart people around them who are trying to expose them to important knowledge, they're going to learn some of that. What's striking about... Um, uh, higher education about the experience of students in higher education is how little resilience there is in most of what they learn. The, the instruction myth carries with it the idea that a one-semester class 
is the framework that will allow people to sufficiently master whatever they want to learn. And I think the evidence against that is simply breathtaking. It's not the case that you remember everything you learned in a semester. In fact, if you don't reinforce it after the semester, you're almost certain to forget all of it. And you've done that. I've done that. <laughs> Everybody, everybody's done that. Some classes shape your thinking for the future so that you, you do, not only do you remember, but you build on what you learned there. But many classes are a one-shot deal. And the idea that exposing yourself to a half, you know, a one semester, uh, you know, history of Asian Republic, uh, Asian culture, whatever it is, is going to let you move in the next year on to know more than you used to know about Asian culture is largely an illusion. So the, the whole idea of the curriculum as a connected set of knowledge that builds on itself, well, it's a great idea in theory, but in practice, it doesn't happen for most students. Most students have a bunch of sort of random requirements, not a curriculum. And when we talk about in curriculum committees and other settings like that, about what you want the experience of the student to be, we pay much, very much less attention than we should to what the experience of the student actually is. Um, that's why the move for uh, assessment and learning outcomes. Uh, which is an attempt to find out what what's going on with the students. But by and large, that has been approached by most institutions the way most students approach studying for the final exam. They cram for it, <laughs> perhaps giving it a little more time, and come up with some learning outcomes that they can report to the creditors. But this these mechanisms very often are not used to change the practice of the institution. So um, as with students, much of the knowledge that is gained through assessment processes is lost rather quickly afterwards. So we have this persistent problem of our aspiration for student learning not aligning with our actions, <laughs> and, um, and hence the this instruction myth. And in the book, you go into you you get into quite a few sort of specifics on things that we can do about this. Actually, how do we fix this? And people, the listeners are just going to have to get the book to get um, most of those. <laughs> but um, for our conversation here, as we sort of uh, close this up in the, next, in the next five minutes or so or something like that, let's see if we can't give the listeners a little glimpse. If you if you could sort of wave your magic wand and and two or three of your recommendations would be adopted in colleges around the country, which ones would you select? Well, I think the the organizational deficiency is is feedback. Nobody learns without feedback. That is information about what you've done or are doing that tells you whether you've succeeded in achieving your goals and helps you to achieve them better in the future. If you don't get feedback, you won't get any better. And most institutions and most faculty in most institutions don't get much serious feedback on 
how they're doing or what they're doing. So, uh, I mean, the two core suggestions I make um, are that institutions should create a feedback loop for information, first, about how faculty are teaching, and secondly, about how students are learning and how well they're learning and what they're learning. So in terms of faculty, uh, I rely heavily on uh, the work of Carl Wyman, uh, physics Nobelist, who uh, now at Stanford, formerly at the University of British Columbia, who has developed a um, an inventory of practice in teaching that can be administered to most faculty in about 10 minutes. It's designed for higher education, for uh, mostly math and, math and science teaching, STEM disciplines, uh, but could be uh, adapted to almost any topic with relatively minor modifications. If an institution, in other words, what's the question that you won't get an answer to if you if we've got all this apparatus of information US news and report and washington monthly and all their stuff about a higher education ranking the schools what's one thing you won't find out from any of those sources you won't find out how the teachers teach what's the most important thing about what students learn it's how the teachers teach <laughs> so what we have omitted in our system of uh, information and data about higher education. I mean, we've got big data, but it's also bad data because it doesn't tell us anything about what is most central to the student's learning experience. So um, Wyman's uh, inventory is, uh, I suggest as, a, as an example, a paradigm, if you will, of the kind of inventory that every institution should apply to all their teachers and publish the results. If institutions actually told students and parents in advance how the teachers there are likely to teach, it would change the transaction in higher education. And the second thing, of course, is learning outcomes. Every institution claims to have learning outcomes, but at many of those institutions, many of the students aren't quite sure what they are. Now, that's not always true. There are the Alverno Colleges of the world, and there are other exemplary institutions, some of which I talk about in the book, that have developed real uh, mechanisms for feeding back to students what is the average performance of a student, what's your performance, how, do you develop, how are you progressing in the same learning outcomes in different classes. And um, I think if we had feedback to the institution and to every faculty member and every department and every student in the institution about what their performance on learning outcomes is, what it would do is it would make people use the feedback to evaluate their changes. Because right now, there's a great incentive for faculty to try to teach better, but there's very little information, and there's no information that faculty members must encounter 
that comes to them as part of the job that says, this is what you're doing, and this is how you're doing, and this is how it compares to what everybody else is doing. So much of the thinking of individual faculty members about what they should do next is based on casual conversations, rumor, feedback, departmental dictum, and so on and so forth. It's not based on information about how the teaching learning transaction is actually being conducted in the classroom. And that's what we need to get information about to prospective students, actual students, real teachers, real departments, so that it changed the trend. Now, if I, uh, of course, if I were king, it would also be incorporated immediately into decisions about tenure and promotion. That will come. But first, you have to have a mechanism of feedback to the institution that tells people when you're doing better, when you're not, and where you can improve. Seems like a great place to start. This is, conversation has gone so quickly. We're already at the end of our time. But I'm really grateful, John, uh, for the work that you've done, for the thought-provoking text, the instruction myth. I encourage the listeners to check it out for themselves. John, uh, thanks for your work and thanks for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edu futures.